0: Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, Loving Jesus by Loving People. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1091 in that Bible. I stand here today on the conviction that Jesus Christ is alive. And I know many here share that conviction as well. And today we join our faith with hundreds of millions of Christ followers all around the world who are gathering today to declare that Jesus is alive. And it's a powerful day for us. For those of us who follow after Jesus, this is the most important day that we celebrate of the year. It is the day that everything changed forever. And Christmas is important. But Christmas is only important because Easter Sunday has happened. It's what gives everything context. And as we jump into Easter Sunday this morning, Let's just take note for a second that it's also April Fool's Day, which has not happened in 62 years. And so this might be the only one in your lifetime that lands this way. And I honestly don't really get how the Easter calendar works. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. But it's landed here this year. And uh, as we look at uh, resurrection, pastors all over the world this week have been going Uh, Resurrection, April Fool's Day, surprise, there's something there, there's something connecting all of this together, I know it. And so we've been wrestling through that this week, and April Fool's Day is a day for practical jokes, and I've never been big on practical jokes myself, but it's been a day where you sort of would play a prank or do something that surprises somebody, that catches somebody off guard, that, that goes, aha, that says, I gotcha. And there, there is something, there's a tie-in there for sure. And as we talk about this, this practical joke thing, um, there's a show that's not on the air anymore, but for my money, it's one of the greatest sitcoms of all time called The Office. And one of the running jokes in The Office is that these two characters, Jim on the right, was always playing practical jokes on Dwight, who's on the left. So someone on YouTube put together a few of those pranks. Take a look. I missed that show. It was one of the greats. So in a practical joke, there is an element of aha, right? There's an element of surprise. There is an element of I gotcha. And we're not obviously lowering the resurrection to the level of a practical joke. It was a bit different than that. But there is a tie-in there where as I was getting ready this week, I went, oh, April Fools and resurrection and surprise and aha, and oh, this sermon practically writes itself this week. And the resurrection really was God's great surprise on the world. Where on Good Friday, the powers of hell really thought they won. The people who didn't like Jesus really thought they had removed the problem when they took Jesus out on the cross. And Resurrection Sunday is God's great surprise. It's God's great aha. It's God's great I gotcha It's God's great display of his power where he turned everything upside down and nothing was the way it was anymore. And so as we dive into this and as we reflect on this today, um, you know, this once-in-a-lifetime day when April Fool's and Resurrection land on the same day, as we honor the great surprise that God brought, all throughout the Middle Ages, whenever they they would portray Satan or demons in medieval art, they were often portrayed as kind of sad, bumbling fools. Uh, Look at this demon. Look how sad he is. And they were portrayed that way because the view of the time was that God had just so humiliated and schooled the powers of darkness that they must be idiots. That they really thought they won the day and God was playing them the whole time. And then he pulls the resurrection out of his hat and everything changes after that. So let's go to our text today. We're in Acts chapter 2, page 1091, if you're in the Pew Bible. And as we look at this, um, this is the first day of the church. This is the day of Pentecost. So Jesus has risen. Uh, he has returned to heaven, and the church is starting. And on this day, Peter the Apostle is standing up and he is preaching the first ever message of this brand new church. So we're starting in verse 22. Peter says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has achieved, received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And we'll stop there. So Peter is standing up. He's preaching the first message of the brand new church. And as he preaches, it's all about Jesus, And it's not just all about Jesus, it's all about the fact that Jesus is alive. That is the first message, the foundational message of the early church. And so this is the first time the gospel really is being shared in a public way. And so the crowd there who is gathered around him have never really heard this before. The apostles all knew the story, and some of the other people had heard it and had seen Jesus. But for most of the crowd who is listening to him speak, they are hearing this for the first time. And as Peter jumps in, right away it's, Jesus has come, Jesus has died, Jesus is alive. And he goes on to say, Jesus is the way to be saved in this life. And so as he starts in verse 22, he just starts laying out a bit of a recap of what's been going on in Jerusalem, in the city, uh, in the recent days. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So Jesus has died and and come back just seven weeks ago, seven weeks before this has happened. So this is very recent history. Everybody would know the name Jesus. Everybody would have heard about the crucifixion. Everybody would have heard rumors that people had seen him alive after his crucifixion. So Peter is just kind of recapping what has been going on in Jerusalem lately. Everybody knows the name of Jesus. Not everybody knows what his name is all about. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Um, And so there were people involved with this, but Peter makes very clear God was up to something here. God was up to something in this death. God is ordaining this. God is making this happen. And even though you were involved, and even though hell was involved, and even though wicked people were involved with this, God was doing something that you guys didn't realize at the time. God was ordaining something. He was working something out. And as Jesus goes down to the grave, that's not the end of the story. Verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It wasn't possible for death to hold on to Jesus. Jesus rising from the dead was a foregone conclusion because he was too big and powerful for death to hold him down. And this is, to me, is one of the best verses in all of Scripture talking about Resurrection Sunday and the why of it all. This was not Jesus struggling to come back from the darkness and the depth. This was Satan throwing everything he had at Jesus, including the finality of death with all of its heartbreak and all of its despair and all of its heaviness, the shadow of death that looms over all of us, which there is no coming back from, he puts that on Jesus, and Jesus says, Ah, I'm good, thanks. As he strolls out of the tomb, On Sunday morning, it wasn't possible for Satan's biggest trick to hold Jesus down. And that, as we go through, is the first big surprise. You thought he was dead, but he was too big for death. He's alive. He's alive right now. And so as we reflect on Resurrection Sunday, the God who willingly laid down his life for us, who willingly bled for us, who willingly subjected himself to death, and that he was just too large for death to keep a hold on him. It was the greatness of God on full display. It just wasn't possible for death to keep its hooks in him. He was never going to stay in the grave. One of the greatest boxing matches of all time was Ali versus Foreman for the heavyweight championship of the world, the Rumble in the Jungle in uh, the Congo. And as that fight was coming up, Ali was considered kind of past his prime. He'd been out of the game for a while. Uh, This was supposed to be kind of his big comeback. George Foreman is the champion of the world, and George Foreman's known as one of the hardest punchers of all time. And there's a story that when he was in the gym one day, he was punching a big 100-pound heavy bag, and he actually broke it in half just with the power of his punches. And so as they were preparing Ali for this fight, uh, Ali was older, but he was still really quick. Their whole strategy was, don't get punched by this guy. Just do what you can to stay away from this guy. If he starts landing punches on you, he's going to knock you out. And so Ali was training that way, and yet, as the fight actually began on the day of the big match, Ali just kind of backed into the corner and leaned against the ropes, and he let Foreman just wail away on him. And his corner is screaming at him, Get away, get away, move, dance around, don't let him hit you. And round after round, Ali just stood there and took a beating and just just kept getting hammered and hammered and hammered by the strongest puncher in the world. Round after round, and when the round would end and he'd go back to his corner, his coaches are screaming at him, what are you doing? Don't let him trap you, don't let him hit you, you're gonna get knocked out. So as round after round happens, uh, all of a sudden there's a switch, and you can watch this on YouTube, it's on there, Uh, where Ali has been getting pounded on and pounded on and pounded on over and over and over and over, and then he sees an opportunity, and all of a sudden he starts swinging back, And he doesn't do a lot. He's been wailed on the whole match. All of a sudden, he just goes bam, 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 bam. And just that quick, just those few, this flurry of punches, and down goes Foreman, and Foreman doesn't get up. And Ali is now the heavyweight champion of the world. And what came up after the fact, Ali came forward and he said, that was my strategy the whole time because as I was taking a beating, I decided, you know what, I can take a beating, but I'm going to wear this guy out because he's spending all his energy punching and he was getting more and more exhausted. And when Ali saw his opportunity, it was just a few choice punches and all of a sudden the whole game changed. What looked like a beating was actually a strategy for victory what looked like a sure knockout loss turned out to a knockout turned into a knockout for the other side and that is what the resurrection is all about that is what is going on in this story that jesus looks like he's taking a loss It looks like the end. It looks like the Son of God is finished. It looks like God's work on earth is over, but it's all a strategy to bring the victory about what looked like a loss turns into a victory as Jesus enters into death and takes it down from the inside by rising from the dead. It changes everything. Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, meaning the powers of hell, having stripped them. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's, it's backwards to what you would think. The cross does not look like triumph. The cross looks like death. The cross looks like the end. The cross looks like everything's over. But that is the method that God used to bring down the powers of hell and to triumph over death in the end. Because of that, Romans 6, 4 says, As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. As he lives, we will live. As he has left the grave behind, we will leave the grave behind. And not just that, we leave behind the sin of our past, the hurt of our past, the baggage of our past. We can live a new life now. And as we follow after Jesus, we don't just follow after him here on earth. We will follow him into eternity because he lives. And so as we look at resurrection, as we look at the empty tomb, as we look at what he's done, he has already triumphed over death. That's the baseline. For Christianity, that's where it starts. The baseline foundation is that death has been beaten and you can now live forever with him. So if he's already beaten death, what is any other problem in my life gonna be to him? Any stress or baggage or sickness, anything that I'm facing, he's already beaten death. He already knows how to do that. So what else can I face that could possibly be a worry to him? if we're starting from the place where death has been beaten. If he has beaten death, there's nothing else in my life that cannot also be beaten by his glory and by his power because he's already started by beating the biggest and scariest thing of all. So the people of Jesus' time, the powers of hell, really thought they had taken Jesus down, but God fooled them. He had a surprise up his sleeve. Jesus is alive. Peter carries on in his sermon, and every good sermon needs some scripture in there. So Peter starts reading from scripture, and he reads from uh, the Psalms. Psalm 16, 8 to 11, quoting King David, who wrote many of the Psalms. And so Psalm 16, 8 to 11 says, I saw the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. Here's the key. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Those are the two verses that Peter is emphasizing. And so he's quoting King David, who wrote this about a thousand years before Jesus would walk the earth. And as Peter is pointing to the scripture, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Peter has to point out, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. So David, who a thousand years ago wrote, I won't remain in the grave, he's in the grave right now. But that's not really what this passage is about, because he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So seeing what was to come, he was speaking of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. And so for the people who were listening and some of the religious leaders who had sent Jesus to the cross, for those who were uh, just angry at Jesus, they didn't like the message that he shared. They didn't like the way he presented God. They didn't like the way he talked about himself. And so there were people who just hated Jesus, and they put him to death, and they thought they were putting a man to death. But here's the next surprise. This wasn't just a man who you put to death. This was the Messiah, This was the Savior. This was God come near us. This was the one who came to deliver us. Jesus is not just a man. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is what God is like. Jesus shows us what God is like. If we want to know God better, we can look to Jesus and understand God better. And we don't have to get our heads too, you know, worked up trying to wrestle through theology and and some tough passages of scripture and things about God that are mysterious. If you want to know God better, you look to Jesus. Jesus shows us who God is. So if we want to know the heart of God, the mind of God, the will of God, the words of God, we look to Jesus. Jesus shows us who God is. The author of Hebrews says, the Son is the exact representation of who God is. We can trust that Jesus shows us God. And through knowing Jesus better, we get to know God better. And that being said, we can take a lot of hope and be humbled and amazed at what that says about God's heart towards us when we consider what he did for us, when we consider that he went to the cross for us, scripture makes clear he did it because he loves us, that the love of God is shown to us so clearly in the cross that he was willing to do that for us. He was willing to suffer for us. He was willing to die for us. That's what love looks like. God loves you that much that he did that for you. And not only did he die for us, of course, he rose for us, the people of the time thought they were killing a man, they were wiping out a problem, but God surprised them. This was not just a man that they took down. Jesus is the Messiah. Not only that, Peter wraps up saying, God has raised this Jesus to life, verse 32, and we are all witnesses of it. Surprise, there were witnesses to the risen Savior. They thought they were solving a problem and shoving him in a tomb, and yet there are those who saw him alive. Scripture says over 500 people witnessed the risen Savior. Over 500 saw him, not just the 12 apostles. And some, including the apostles, actually physically felt his body, actually were able to touch his flesh and blood, examine the wounds that he had from the crucifixion. They thought they were making a problem go away, but there were witnesses who saw it. And these witnesses were all remarkably consistent in the story that they told, that Jesus is alive. And there were accusations almost right away That, oh, they just took the body and that's why the tomb was empty. They just were trying to promote, uh, you know, their brand of religion. And so they decided just to kind of keep this lie going. And that's been an accusation from the beginning. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, that starts to show up. And the problem with that is we tell lies to make our lives better, right? To get out of trouble or to advance ourselves or whatever. And we shouldn't. I'm not endorsing lying for those reasons. But we tell lies to better our situation. And if this is a lie, this lie made things a whole lot worse. The ones who said Jesus is alive were beaten. They were whipped. They were thrown into prison. They were executed. Traditionally, 11 of the 12 apostles were executed, some of them brutally, for saying Jesus is alive. And all it would have taken is one of them to crack under pressure. right? One apostle under torture to say, Okay, we made it up. Okay, we did. We stole the body, and, and we, we, just, we, we all lied about it, and we convinced 500 people to lie about it, and we've all stuck to the same lie. 500 people kept saying Jesus is alive even in the face of persecution. Even when they were told, deny he's alive or we'll kill you, they chose death rather than deny that he was alive. And that, I think, only really happens if he's actually alive. Who's willing to die for a lie? And so they continue to testify. The story continues to spread. And you might know a guy named Chuck Colson. For him, he said, that's how I know that Jesus is alive. And Chuck Colson was, uh, he died a few years ago. He ran a ministry called Prison Fellowship International. And he had a big heart for prisoners. And the reason he had a big heart for prisoners is because he was a prisoner. And the reason he was a prisoner was because he was part of President Nixon's team when Watergate blew up. And so one of his jobs was to cover up everything shady that happened in Watergate. And so he was part of the team that lied and, and, sw- and committed perjury and withheld evidence. And so when it all blew up, that's eventually what he went to jail for. And he became a Christian right before he went to jail. And a lot of people were really cynical about that because they just thought, oh, he's just trying to get, you know, jury point, points with the jury and, and a lighter sentence. But uh, he continued to confess Jesus as Lord for the rest of his life and became a full-time minister when he got out. But his whole thing was, when Watergate happened, you know, President Nixon and his team did some shady things, and as it began to come out and leak into the press, they did more shady things to try and cover it up, Uh, and they were lying under oath, and they were getting rid of evidence and all of this stuff. And his whole thing is, when I look at the apostles, if the whole thing is a lie, or it was a cover-up or a misunderstanding or whatever, if the whole thing was just man-made, he said, the problem is they stuck to that story under torture, persecution, and death. They all stuck to it, not a single person caved. He said, I was part of the team where our job was to protect the most powerful man on earth. And it took three weeks for us to be threatened with some jail time before the whole thing fell apart and we were all ratting on each other and everybody went to jail. He said it took three weeks of prosecutors saying, if you don't tell us the truth, you're going to go to jail, and everybody just collapsed in caves. So he says, I know a little bit about what it's like to, to try and keep a lie going, and I, there's no way that the apostles could have possibly done that. Peter says, we witnessed... Jesus alive. Not we heard about it. We witnessed him alive and kept telling that same story until he died. And as the apostles are witnesses, as they kept up that story, we're witnesses too. We also have a story to tell. We have all encountered Jesus, if we are Christ followers, in one way or another. And it's no doubt not as dramatic as seeing the literal physical body of Jesus. But we have all been impacted in some way. And so whether it's, you know, my life is different or I left that sin behind or I found healing or I had this prayer answered, all of those things testify that Jesus is alive because dead people can't do those things for us. A dead person can't answer our prayers. A dead person can't let me feel their presence as I come into worship. A dead person can't interact with me and speak to me. A person who's alive can do those things. And hundreds of millions of Christians around the world right now are testifying, we know Jesus is alive because we've experienced him. We have had an experience of some kind with the living Savior. And so your witness might just be, how do you finish that sentence? I believe Jesus is alive because. What comes next for you? Because I've been transformed, because I've heard his voice, because I've been able to leave my sin behind, because I'm a different person than I was before, because he answered this prayer, however that looks for you, that is your witness. That is your testimony. And it doesn't have to be as dramatic as Peter's. Your story is your story. However you have been impacted, that is your story to share. And our job is to share it. And, and the apostles set this example for us because they kept sharing that story. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, even unto their own deaths. So how can we be silent about it? How can we hold back when we share that same testimony? They shared it even under torture, even under death. They must have really believed it was true. And I trust that they did, because they actually physically saw. Our testimony is the same. Jesus is alive. The people thought that they were executing Jesus. They were making a problem go away. They were shoving him in the tomb where they would never have to think about him again. But God surprised them. There were witnesses that saw Jesus alive after all of this happened. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here today. We have an email address here at Meadowbrook Church. Questions at Meadowbrook.ca. It's in your bulletin as well. If you have any questions or comments, if you want to keep chatting about the sermon, we're always happy to do that, so please feel free to make use of that. I finish every Easter Sunday with this story. It's a true story. Uh, I just like it, so you've heard this from me before. But in Russia, in the early part of the 20th century, they went through a revolution. The communists took over. And the communists were atheistic. They didn't believe in God. They thought the idea of God was dangerous. And so they did whatever they could to remove religion from their society entirely. And so uh, they burned down churches. Many uh, Orthodox priests were imprisoned. Many were killed. Uh, Many Christians suffered under that time as they did everything they could uh, to stamp out the gospel. They didn't like it. One of the early party leaders was Nikolai Bukharin. He was a a main guy until Stalin decided he didn't like him one day, and eventually he was executed. But he was one of the, the key leaders. He was brilliant. He was an intellectual. And the story goes that he went into a town and called the town together, just a small town. But they all met in the town square, and he stood on the platform in the town square. And for two hours, he just ripped Christianity to shreds. And just attacked everything that Christ followers hold dear. Attacked the value of scripture, attacked the resurrection, attacked who Jesus was, attacked the church. Just for two hours, just a blistering attack against Christianity. And when he was done, knowing that he was a smart guy, knowing that he had spoken very well, and knowing that he had delivered his argument uh, in his mind in a brilliant way, he said, does anyone have a response to anything I just said? an Orthodox priest got up in his gown with his hat he had a walking staff and he slowly marched up he was elderly, came up to the microphone and looked at the crowd and said three simple words he is risen and the crowd thundered back he is risen indeed and where the the Russian government spent 70 years trying to stamp out the gospel uh, that empire fell and the gospel is still there where for 2,000 years kings and rulers and empires and armies and rival philosophies and rival religious movements have tried to remove the gospel from the earth, still people continue to testify he is risen. And I can say he is risen because he has impacted my life. And the Bible says the way to get on board with this is not over difficult it takes a step of faith to be certain i don't mean that part's not always a potentially a bit of a struggle but it says here's how you are saved you put your trust in the fact that he has risen and you follow after him as lord you follow after his ways you take seriously how he's taught us to live and you live the way he asks us to live trust in his resurrection and follow after him that is the way to heaven that's the way so many here have made that choice already. If that's not you today, maybe that hits you today. Maybe there's something about that for you today where you say, yes, that's something I need to take. And we have people here. We'd be happy to chat with you after the service if that is you. But we are standing here on Easter Sunday in a church. And so we boldly say he is risen. Jesus is alive. And our job is to share that story. We're going to worship a little bit more. Before we dismiss, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we'll close in just a few minutes. Jesus, it is so good to sing those words this morning. Your name is victory, Father. Your praise belongs to you. All praise belongs to you because you are good. We praise you this morning because death cannot hold you down. The grief cannot hold you down. You defeated death, and we have life because you live And we thank you for that this morning. And we ask that you give us courage, that you give us boldness to go out there and be witnesses for those who need to know you, those who are walking away from you, those who are suffering, those who you died for. Father, send us out there to be witnesses, to walk in a way that reflects who you are. Help us to be shining lights for those who need to know you, Father. We love you. Amen.